Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. That's another thing that's insanity inducing is to think that this invisible entity that's just pure evil is in your head and talking to you. Yeah. Their explanation for mental health issues, which are demons. I was told there was a demon with me following me around, getting into my head, being told to like do these prayers to wash, to banish the demons away. Like one is like precious blood of Jesus wash over me, precious blood of Jesus wash over me. I banish you demon to the foot of the cross to be judged by our Lord. These are just things to say in our heads that are supposed to fix the problem, that are supposed to scare the demons away who are like trying to make you think of sexual things and and trying to make you depressed and anxious and upset and all of that. That's terrifying. Certain voices in your head, certain things that are telling you that this stuff isn't right, you know, they get you to associate that with pure evil. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions or organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. If you're only listening and you want to see our faces, go to my YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness, where you can like, subscribe, join in on the conversation, leave some words of encouragement for our guests who are bravely coming on and telling their stories, and become an advocate by subscribing. That always means a lot to us, and it helps the channel get more eyes on all of these topics. So today's guest, he reached out to us because he has a story about fundamental Catholicism. Now, this is a topic that a lot of you have been requesting. We're officially going to be diving in here. And this is specifically... I guess you could call it the old world Catholicism, and we're going to go over the distinctions and the history and the breakoffs. But we're, what we're going to be speaking on today is more of the fundamentalist side and the harms that can go along with that. So I have with me Anthony Sturgeon. Thanks for joining us. Hi, nice to nice to be on here. Thank you so much uh, for having me on. Yeah, of course. And on our pre-call, you had so much information, and I admittedly, this is new to me, the Catholicism side of things. And while I can relate to the basics of Christianity in some sort of way, the Catholicism is something that is just completely brand new. So Mm -hmm. I would love it if we could start by talking a little bit about the history of Catholicism and the breakoffs and how you ended up in the sect that you grew up in. Absolutely. Getting started here uh, to talk about, you know, the history of the Catholic Church. According to the Catholic Church, its history was is that it was founded by Jesus, that uh, when Jesus, you know, was resurrected and uh, he came back to his apostles and preached to them, he appointed, P- the idea is he appointed Peter the head of his church. Uh, and um, we all know about Peter, St. Saint, uh, Peter from, from the Gospels. And there was a uh, something done where, again, this is, you know, biblical history. And I don't, I read the Bible a lot, you know. It, when you're raised Catholic, you you do honestly not to a degree, not to the same degree that most Christians read the Bible. The Catholics are, are like, we'll tell you what's in the Bible, and mm. it's not super important that you you read it yourself. But when Jesus sort of put his hands on Peter's shoulders, 
and uh, appointed him as the uh, the head of his new church. And whenever there's um, an ordination of a priest uh, uh, by in the Catholic Church, there's a laying on of the hands of, on the shoulders. Uh, actually, I, I can't remember if it's the head or the shoulders, honestly. That, that That's escaping me at the moment, but it's one of the two. And the idea is that you can trace that touch all the way back to Jesus uh, putting his hands on Peter. So... Um, the Catholic Church believes that their founder was Jesus Christ, and so basically God. And so you were raised Mormon, and the difference mm-hmm. there is that Joseph Smith was very much a man um, who didn't claim to, he claimed to be a prophet. He didn't claim to be, to have any sort of divinity to him, right? Well, actually. <laughs> okay, well, you, you, you can educate me on that. But as far as I know, did he claim to be like the son of God in the same way Jesus right, was? Right, no. No, he just That's claimed to meant. be like basically better than Jesus. So I don't okay. know if that counts. <laughs> he he didn't say he was a god, but he was like, I am the the best thing next to Jesus. In fact, some and I'm messing up the quote, but something yeah. to the sense of he thought that he was better than Jesus and he claims okay. that God and Jesus appeared to him and said, you need to fix it because they're doing it wrong and you need to bring my real church back. So yeah, I mean, it's a little dicey. But I mean, if you can trace your religion all the way back to Jesus himself, that seems like pretty legit. Yes, exactly. And uh, that's that's the idea they have. Now, obviously, I tend to think that there actually was an actual man, an actual Jesus, but obviously I don't think he was divine. And, you know, in terms of the actual history, the historical accuracy of any of that, of what I just said, I really don't know that I would leave that more to like biblical experts and experts and all that. I can only know what the Catholic church sort of presents itself as, Hmm. but Catholicism for most of its history up until the the 1960s really was super, super obsessed with keeping everything exactly the same. Now there was development still, but when the development happened and they, they held on to it as, as hard as possible and the, 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 the Latin mass and everything. So the Latin mass for most of the church's history, like I said, it was set in Latin and it was done in a specific setting. And the Catholic church is very ritualistic. Their rituals have to be done in a very, very precise way with the very, with the right word said and the right, and, um, and you mentioned the word fundamentalist. Um, that's a common word that's used to d- describe this, this kind of attitude of keep it the exact same way. Don't mm-hmm. change anything. We're going to do the same thing the whole time. But uh, to them, they, what they call themselves is traditionalists. Okay. And so you could use the word fundamentalist if you want. I think in, it's basically has the same meaning in this context. But they say traditionalists. In fact, a term that they use for themselves is tradies. That's the the moniker, their, their self moniker, so that's what I call them to to make the uh, distinct to make it easy to understand who we're talking about here. But in the 1960s, something called the Second Vatican Council. Honestly, I think you could say that what happened was is they the Catholic Church sort of decultified itself, uncultified itself. They recognized, <laughs> hey, basically the Pope at the time was John the 23rd, and he looked around at the world and culture and society, and he said we're just not going to fit in. Like people are just not going to want to be a part of us anymore because the world around us is just changing so much. And we of course can't have changed anything. Uh, and, and the world's not going to accept us or, or people are going to leave. So he thought, well, let's change things. Let's make it more welcoming. Let's um, change what we focus on. 
they didn't actually change any teaching really they didn't change like any of the actual dogma and that's you know a word mm. we'll be coming back to and is dogma dogma is the idea of it's a law that cannot be questioned ever that 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 is you know the essential definition of a dogma is what and the wow. church when the church defines it as a dogma it's set in stone don't even think about questioning it don't even think about you know wondering about the the wisdom of it or thinking about the harmful effect that it has, you just accept it. And this is a very common theme in traditional Catholicism is just accept it, just believe it. That's very interesting. And I've actually only heard the term dogma in the context of just like religious BS, like don't believe the dogma. But I've never actually yeah. heard it in the term where the religion itself would want to use that and say, no, this is how it is. So I appreciate you giving that little definition yeah. there. So it sounds like the Catholic Church, they, like you said, they didn't want to change any of the theology or the rules. They just wanted to rebrand themselves. Can you exactly. give any tangible examples of ways that they wanted to appear more accepting? For example, I'm assuming at this time specifically, they still weren't accepting of gay marriage or or nobody was really, no. but gay relationships. Okay, so but did they pretend? Yes, that's kind of the thing. They okay. started just pretending that they did. That that that's kind of sort of what happened. Um so I can go through the tangible changes that were made. Um a big change was changing the way mass was done. So here's how mass was done from you know, whenever Jesus founded it uh, to the to the 1960s, it was said in Latin, except when the priest was going to give a sermon, he would say that in whatever language was native to where they were. But everything else was said in Latin. So if you want to be able to follow along to what's being said and understand what's happening, you have to learn Latin, which is a dead language, you know? Right. At the homeschool co-op I went to, we were taught Latin, uh, but I've forgotten most of it. Anyway, uh, Mass was said at the time where... The pews are all facing one direction and the priest, when he's, you know, doing the consecration, which is where he blesses the, the bread and wine and literally makes it God. Like that's mm. another, that's another thing people don't really understand about Catholicism really is that there is nothing metaphorical or nothing so, there, in, in the idea of turning the water, bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus. Oh. It is literally Jesus's body. Ooh. That's a little... Mm. <laughs> yeah, and it's literally Jesus' blood. So Catholics Catholics have our God and eat him too. <laughs> and I, I... Stop. I know that sounds stupid, but I'm, that's literally true. Catholics literally eat God. And that's sort of a crude way to say it, but it's, the, but it's what they believe. So okay. um, that is such a core precious belief to them that I don't even want to talk too much more about it. Like... You can say whatever you want about it, but I'm not going to come out here and say and talk about like, that's, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that because it's just hard to explain how, how deep that belief is for Catholics. Yeah. And I, I do want to say we're not here to mock anybody's beliefs. We're just here no. to kind of, at least for right now, get a groundwork of the belief so that we can understand the ways in which it causes harm. And that's what we try to do here. Exactly. So anyway... Um, Mass is said in Latin. The music that is sung is very sort of like chanty and sort of, you know, 
You've heard that Ave Maria. You, you've probably heard that music before. In the Beautiful group. song. And yeah, it is. But it's very um, that kind of music in a setting that's otherwise silence is a little trance inducing. Um, it does kind of the, the way the music is. It is. It kind of puts you into this hypnosis, sort of ethereal frame of mind. Yeah, uh, ethereal frame of mind a little bit. It's designed to, and everything's very quiet. And you you're, you have to be very very quiet and serious, and and you can't you have to sort of have a have a very very serious expression on your face the whole time. There's a lot of standing up, sitting down, kneeling, standing up, sitting down. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of that. It, it's a very very specific environment, and it's very very kind of grim, and it's but it, but it's like deadly serious. Like this is the most serious thing in the world right now. That's so that's the traditional way. And that's how they kept on doing it. Uh, the traditionalists kept on doing it that way after the Second Vatican Council. But your more mainstream Catholic church, uh, usually the priest, when he's doing the sacrifice, is facing the people. And it's the music sounds like Cat Stevens and Peter, Paul, and Mary, you know, uh, and it, it's, uh, and they're playing guitars and sometimes they're on drums. Mm. And, um, you don't, when you receive the Eucharist in the traditional way, you kneel down in front of the altar. There's like a rail where everyone kneels in front of, and the priest one by one goes to everyone and you stick your tongue out and he puts it on your tongue. Right. But in the new mass, ordinary people, not just the priest, are administering the Eucharist and you walk up and you, you're not kneeling when you get it and you just hold your hands out. And they put it in your hand. Okay. And then you just eat it like that. Can I clarify for people who don't know? Yeah. Which is me. Um, so the Eucharist is, that's considered communion. Is communion also a yes. Catholic word or are they interchangeable or no? Well, communion is when you eat the Eucharist. Oh, got it. it. That, that's what it's called. It's part of the same things. It's what's called a sacrament. Uh -huh. um, there are seven, there's seven sacraments. They are probably still remember them there's the eucharist there's marriage there's holy orders there's extreme unction there is confirmation um there's baptism and um there's one other that is escaping me right now but it's sort of like the uh the rituals the the the, the important rituals would it be a baby blessing maybe baptism you mean a oh. baby blessing okay i just wondered because uh, no, you named that's what that's what baptism is it's funny because you named all of the things that the Mormon church does. So they call it sacrament when you eat the bread and drink the water <clears throat> and then the baptism and everything. Um, jo Joseph Smith stole, he stole from everywhere, right? So oh, I'm yeah. pretty sure he just stole some stuff from the Catholic church uh, <laughs> as, as well. Yeah. Um, but so the, basically the change in the mass made everything after the second Vatican council made everything a lot more um, uh, welcoming. The, the feel that there was a, there was a much more pleasant atmosphere environment. You you didn't feel like, you know, this is the most, you didn't, it wasn't very solemn or grim, like you're at a funeral, mm -hmm. you know, it was like you're at a kind of more like you're at a wedding. Uh, that's, that's kind of the, the vibe and atmosphere to average Catholic church. And um, there's another thing they do where um, after they, after they do the Eucharist, uh, after they consecrate it and make it the body and blood of Jesus, they say, let us all offer each other the sign of Christ's peace. And everyone will turn to each other and go, peace be with you and shake their hands and go, peace be with you and shake their hands. And some people and, you know, uh, and, and it's just everyone's, you know, spreading peace throughout the room. The traditional Catholics hate that. They think that's liberal BS. They don't like that. So basically a good way, this is sort of a crude way to put it, but a good way you could sum it up is 
the traditional mass really appeals to conservatives and the new mass, the Novus Ordo, really appeals to liberals. And the Catholic Church successfully, the Second Vatican Council did have the effect of softening and making the Catholic Church less of a destructive force in the world. Now, here's the thing. When you get down to it, the teachings about homosexuality are still there. The teachings, the, the other ridiculous sexual teachings are still there, and I'll get into that soon. But they're able, the Catholic Church now is able to just put that stuff in the, like, not focus on it, not really talk about it. And most normal Catholics, like the current president of the United States, for example, have a very normal, very healthy experience of their faith that I have no quarrel with. And that's another um, important thing I need to emphasize here. Um, at the end of the day, I really don't have any quarrel with the mainstream Catholic Church. I don't like a lot of the teachings, but I cannot call it a cult. Um, your average person going to your average Catholic Church is probably just your a, a very is probably a perfectly normal, healthy member of society. And so I want to make that point very clear. Um, but in the traditional Catholic world, the atmosphere is toxic, and it's and it's very very harmful to children. Mm. Um, and, and I'm a I'm a living example of that. So I hope I hope that answers your questions of what how it how everything kind of changed. Yeah. So let's talk about the very specific group that you were a part of yeah. that you ended up becoming a part of in your childhood. All right. So neither one of my 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 parents were raised in the what you would call the traditional Catholic world. Um, my dad was raised Catholic, but he was raised in a much more mainstream, normal Catholic way. And my mom was raised Methodist. And she went to a Catholic university, University of Dallas, which is a small Catholic college um, that's right on the outskirts of Dallas in Irving. And um, that's where my parents met. And I, I went there also. The experience there was a whole nother thing. And it was, by and large, a lot more positive than my high school experience. Um, but it's a whole nother thing I could talk about. But anyway, uh my parents met there and uh, got married and my mom converted there. And uh, I'm the firstborn of four kids. Um, growing up there in Irving, we would go to normal Catholic churches for the most part. Sometimes we would go to the church at the University of Dallas, their parish. And there were two other churches in Irving, one named uh, one called St. Luke's, one called Holy Family. So we would kind of ping pong, ping pong around with those. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's how it was. And so I had a, an experience of diff a lot of different ca local Catholic churches in the area. And then my parents started getting interested in homeschooling. And this was kind of out of necessity at the time because in elementary school, I, I, I've been kind of a, a wild, crazy kid from the beginning. Uh, I have ADHD, you know, um, I'm somewhere on the autism spectrum. And I was just a handful. And uh, I did not do well in public school. I started off, my parents were just going to put me through the normal educational system. So I started off at a public elementary school. And I was just getting into trouble a lot. And I was um, having sort of fits and breakdowns a lot. And I got in trouble for calling the principal fat. And I, I, I feel bad about that. To this, I, I really feel bad about that to this day, genuinely, because I'm sure he was a nice guy. But in my stupid kid head, I was like, he's really fat. Why isn't anyone telling him? Oh. And so I, that's what was in my head. I was, I told him like, Hey, you're, you're kind of fat. You should know that. And of course it upset him. And of course I got in big trouble for, for that. Uh, but you know, my, my, my crazy six year old head didn't think, even think that, you know, 
that's a really rude thing to say to somebody. Yeah, I mean, kids don't have any filter. They don't understand really no, empathy at that point. <laughs> they don't. And I, I really had um, no filter at all. And so um, after fourth grade, my parents thought this isn't going to work anymore. And so um, there was a homeschooling community developing. So for most people, they think of homeschooling as you're just at home with your parents and they're teaching you classes. Mm-hmm. There was a little bit of that for me, but I grew up going to co-ops homeschool co-ops, which is a, a thing that a lot of people aren't really aware of, it seems like. But it's basically if you have a lot of families who, and, and, and traditional Catholics have big families. And uh, so a lot of big families, we were four kids. I was, we were the small family, you know, uh, families around me, there's like eight, nine, 10, 11 kids. So I did have a lot of friends there, but they would meet at people's houses at first or in, and, and, uh, 30, maybe 40 kids in this big house, and we would have classes in them. And um, growing up, I, it was um, it worked a lot better for me because it was an environment where my, th- these issues I had could be handled a lot better, a lot easier way. My parents can have a bit more like presence in my my, my issues there. And so, at some point, when it when it got time to my high school years. Um, the, co- the, the co-op system was pretty disorganized. Um, you know, it, it would bounce around at different people's houses. And so my education was kind of, I was still getting it, but it was still kind of scattershot. And um, when it came time for my turning up my high school, when I was about to turn uh, 14, this was in 2010, the trad Catholics got their own building, their own church, because they hadn't had one for a long time in the Dallas area. They had to do mass out of the nun's there was a um, a nun convent in Dallas and they had a private chapel. And uh, these were cloistered nuns. Like we never saw them. They had to keep themselves hidden away from all of us. So whenever you, sometimes mom would go talk to them and it was, it was weird. It was like through a screen and there was like a slot you would hand them down. So I, I could hear a woman's voice, but you know, these are all women who've taken a vow of like celibacy and poverty and they're just going to live sequestered in this building for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And so in 2014, they got their own building, which was an abandoned uh, Korean church, some Korean denomination of Christianity that that had been abandoned. And so I remember when they first got the building, there was like Korean letters all over the place, like the first year, because they hadn't gotten around to to redoing everything and, and refurbishing it yet. But that parish, uh, it still operates right uh, today, and it's called Mater Dei, which is Latin for Mother of God. And they're a traditional Latin mass parish, and uh, that's where I went to high school at from 2010 to 2014. Okay. Real quick, I want to find out if you enjoyed the homeschool process or what that was like for you. How steeped in religion was it? Do you feel like you got a really good education from the homeschooling system? Because I always have to say that I'm not against homeschooling as long as kids are given the proper information, the proper education and not literally told outright lies because of religion. You know what I mean? So I was wondering if your homeschool experience, did you feel like you had a full education? Basically, yes. Basically, I think I learned basically everything I need to. And I, I don't, I have issues with the public school system today. I have issues with the educational system in general. So I agree with you that I'm not against homeschooling at all. I think homeschooling, if it's done in the right way, could actually be really beneficial and, and, and really good. But like you said, it's, it's almost always tied in with religion mm-hmm. because 
the motivation to do it is that we can't let the outside world convince our, our precious kids that, that our religion is wrong. Right. We can't let that happen. That's, that's the mindset there. So that's the motivation to homeschool. But, you know, I think homeschool, it, there, there needs to be more oversight. There needs to be like people regulating. There needs to be more monitoring, more regulation. Yeah, exactly. It needs to be monitored more. Um, but so, so yeah, that's where I stand on that. I'm not saying homeschooling is bad. I'm just saying very so, so often it's done for the wrong reasons. Sure. And it can, and it can lead to very harmful effects. The order of priests that ran this traditional Catholic church, they were called the priestly fraternity of St. Peter. A bit of history on their uh, background real quick. After the Second Vatican Council happened, um, pretty much most of the Catholics accepted it and just went along with it. But again, there were people who were really angry about it. And were like, what, what does this mean? You know, their idea was God said the church can't change. That's part of our dogma is that nothing can change. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of a change, you know, this is going to, uh, you know, this is, this is a really bad thing. And so there was this, uh, there was this uh, bishop, an archbishop, and his, he was French, and his name was Marcel Lefebvre. And he decided he was going to disobey the Pope, and he was going to consecrate these four priests and make them bishops and start an order of priests that were going to do the Latin Mass and keep that going. Mm. And so he did that. He did that. He, he went against the Pope's orders, and he consecrated these four men. And when that was discovered... The Pope excommunicated Lefebvre mm. and from the Catholic Church and declared that the Society of St. Pius the Ten, of the Tenth, the organization he founded, was in schism. Schism means that you're separate from the church. You used to be part of it, but you've done something that's, that's put you outside of it, basically. And um, But you're still kind of acting and doing stuff as if you're still Catholic. Mm-hmm. And so the Society of St. Pius X is still operating and they're still in schism. But some members of that society left and went back to the Vatican. And they were kind of like, you know, hat in hand, kind of me, kind of ashamed a little bit, but they went to the Vatican and they said, hey, we're really sorry about that guy consecrating those bishops. Uh, that wasn't cool, but we just really like this Latin mass thing and we'll play ball with you. We'll do whatever you want. We just want your official approval. Yeah, let us back in the cool kids club, please. <laughs> yeah, let, let us back in the cool kid club or, um, I don't necessarily felt if that was, it was like cool kid, but it was sort of like they, the cat, their, the mindset is obsessed with, it's very legalistic. You have to have the, their, their official stamps on everything yeah. to, to feel like you're legit, to feel like you're legitimate. And they just said, we don't feel like we're legitimate, but we want to keep doing the same thing. So that the Pope granted their permission and he, the, the fraternity, the priestly fraternity of St. Peter was created, uh, an organization that continues the Latin mass. Um, and uh, continues to do uh, to do it in the old way, and there's still a, a organization, the Society of St. Pius X, that's doing it the old way as well. But they're just in schism. So I went to the church that was run by this second organization. Basically, it's kind of complicated political stuff, but I hope that sort of summer makes it all clear. Wait, so you went to the one that was in schism or was not the one that was recognized was by not. the Pope? The, the one that was recognized. Yeah. So okay, I went to. I went to a legit Catholic church, but it was a legit Catholic church that was run by people who kind of used to be not legit. Like it, it was, um, <laughs> okay. That's, I guess, the setup for everything. Um, is there anything else that you think needs more explaining? No, I think that makes sense. 
We can get back to your specific story. So you're about to tell us about your homeschooling within high school, within this specific church. Right. So when the Fraternity of St. Peter got their own building in Irving, uh, in modern day parish and started that up, uh, they decided, they said, we'll bring the homeschooling community here. And so the homeschooling community that was pretty disorganized and was sort of scattered around with different people's houses and was just different families who knew each other and the mothers would get their big families together and, and, and run, run all this, you know, there was a separate building next to the church. So there was, um, a church and then there was a building with like offices and classrooms and so yeah we went there so it was i remember thinking even at the time this is going to be kind of this is an interesting situation to explain to people because i'm homeschooled but i'm going away from home to a building mm-hmm. that has classrooms in it to, to go to school with other kids around me so um and uh, we only met on thursdays there was one day of the week where we had school on thursday the rest of the week we were kind of doing whatever but wow, we were uh, that's fun. we were yeah yeah but we were given a lot of homework they, okay. they didn't want us they were kind of afraid like we don't wor- want word getting out that these kids really aren't like doing that much so but it's undeniable homeschoolers have significantly more free time than average kids i mean that's just an undeniable fact and that's a double-edged sword you know like it's, it's, it could be a good thing or a bad thing. Like it's, it's good or bad depending on how this kid uses his time. I can't say I always use my free time wisely, but when the environment is that kind of relaxed, you could say, or, or not necessarily, I don't want to say relaxed, that, that gives it a, a wrong impression. But when it, the environment's like that, it makes it a lot harder for you to take school seriously. Um, yeah, you know, you know what I mean? Um, and of course, you know, we had the, the base, we had math and science and all that, but you know, a lot of the other classes were about religion or religious religion based, you know? And so, um, like there's this one class called sacraments and apologetics where we learned about the sacraments and then apologetics is the art of convincing people to be Catholic. Um, so I was taught how to do that. Do you remember any of those ways that they would convince or tell you to convince people? You know, it's so funny because when you're not in that mind headspace anymore, um, it's it's kind of it's kind of hard to like because here's the thing: what it all it all boils down to this. Everything boils down to the argument from authority hmm. for the trad for the trad Catholics at least. The argument from authority is Jesus set up this church. The people, or the Son of God, set up this church. Uh, so basically, God set up, set it up, and the people in the church have divine power from God to get things right. Right? Like they're not going to get anything wrong because that would mean God got something wrong. Hmm. You know what I mean? And so, but they have this weird thing where they can still say that popes can be bad people. Yeah, like of like they're doing right now with Francis. The traditional Catholics hate Pope Francis, hate him, um, but but they can't say he's not the Pope. Some of them do. There's a branch of traditional Catholicism called Sede Vacantist. Sede Vacante is Latin for the chair is empty or the chair is vacant. And so it's a small group, offshoot of, they can't really even really just call themselves Catholics because uh, they've, you know, that's, that's, if you believe that you, you're, you're separate from the church, right? Mm-hmm. But the Sede Vacantists think that we haven't had really a legitimate Pope since the second Vatican council. Mel Gibson is a city of a contest. Interesting. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't think that Francis is the legitimate uh, Pope. Some of the people who taught me 
uh, and who are involved in this community were actually friends with Mel Gibson. Um, and so uh, I never met Mel Gibson, but his presence was felt there a little bit because people, people there knew him. And of course, you know, he was uh, he was kind of lionized by traditional Catholics because um, it's like we have a mainstream voice. You know, we, we have like one guy, basically one guy who's, uh, you know, a big famous, a famous person who's also <laughs> a traditional Catholic. OK, I want to get back to you, Anthony. So I I feel like I have a pretty good idea of how you're growing up and how um, you are kind of insulated in this community. And I want to know how you felt about it. Did you feel like you were a devout member? Do you feel like you were on board? Did you just not like it? What's going through your mind as a teenager? I was very much on board up until up until sort of my senior year of high school. And even then, I wasn't not on board with the traditional. I, I wasn't not on board with being Catholic. I still wanted to be Catholic. I just didn't. I just thought the traditionalists are just too crazy. This is just too much. So. Um, but I was still, I, 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 I lost my faith completely, um, in college, uh, when I was, you know, away from that. Okay. So I really want to dive into all the reasons in which you felt it was too extreme because so far it seems pretty good. You're going to school kind of like once a week, you're doing mass in Latin. It seems like, all right, so what's so bad about this? And I know that you contacted me for a reason. So let's get into the nitty gritty as far as how you felt, this was a cultic um, background. All right. Talking about the Catholic Church's sexual ethic, which again, in the modern church is kind of, it's still there, but it's presented in a very much more wholesome, wholesome way, you could say, a, a less, less oppressive, you know. But the, the Catholic, trad Catholics pull no punches. Um, they just look at what's written and they just apply it. Literally. Um, Literally, yeah. And so the church's teaching is, you know, marriage is sex is only in marriage between a, a man and a woman. That is it. And they have to be that the the first time the two of them should ever do anything sexual is on their wedding night. Um, and so that's that's the standard. That that is the object that that is it. And so obviously, um that means the LGBT community as pretty much no place in the the trad catholic world now of course they will they have all these bullshit you know things about oh it's your it's your cross like the 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 modern church for the most part is is far they're doing a far better job at being welcoming to the lgbt community i mean i've seen videos of like pride masses that that have taken place in, in certain areas um but the teachings are still kind of there, you know, it's I mean, it, what I mean, it, but uh, they just sort of ignore them. But the trad Catholics don't ignore them. They say things like the only reason you're gay um, is because you were molested. That's mm. that's the only reason anyone is homosexual is its result of being molested. There was um, I've, I've been I was just on a um, another guy uh, who is a former trad Catholic who has a podcast and I was talking with him and someone in the comments brought up that um, when he came out to his parents. The first thing his dad said was, like, when were you molested? That was the first question. I'm not LGBT, but I can, I want to bring that up to the forefront because whatever experience I'm going to describe to you right now, I just want everyone to know it's, it's, in almost all cases, it's 10 times worse for them. Um, because at least for me, I'm struggling with, you know, straight attraction, which, so, so anyway, so, they think basically that 
it's immoral to do again anything sexual whatsoever basically so i had a girlfriend at the time actually um but we were never alone together ever we weren't allowed to be there were adults around us all the time so the most affectionate we could get is like hugging and holding hands they don't like kissing they don't like um kissing where it's not just a quick thing on the cheek you know or on the lips even any french kissing is like totally wrong uh to them so i want to talk about the specific men there uh who were uh running the church at the time there were two priests um of course every, there's the common moniker of father attached to these two priests and um i am not going to i'm it was built into me to always say father lunch what father wolf and that's just built into built into you so i i'm sure it'll slip out every now and then but I really have made an effort of not saying that anymore because my dad is my dad, not, not these men. And so, um, but Lange was sort of the, the, the main priest there. And Wolf was the associate pastor. Lange was not as present in the community as much as Wolf was. Uh, Lange just didn't seem to be there very often. And he was a, he was a handsome guy. He, and I had a good, uh, I had good interactions with him. I, I've, I've got to say, he would actually tell me to not be scrupulous and that you're, 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 you're too much in your head thinking of all the bad things you're doing. And he was at a very gentle presence, but those things he told me were completely contradicted by what the other priest told me. And the other priest, Wolf, was there much more often. He would give the sermon at mass because we would have, uh, in the middle of the day at the homeschool co-op, we'd have mass at, at noon. And he would usually give that and uh, he would often hear confessions. And of course, most people probably know what confession is. You know, you uh, is uh, quick question, quick side note. Is, is there an equivalent of confession in Mormonism? Oh, yes. It's the same thing, except it's just you you go into the room with the bishop who is the head of the congregations like the priest and confess all of your sins. Didn't seem like he was all that creative because, I mean, he just took things. He just sort of co- seems like he just copied and pasted Joseph from Smith, different yeah. things. <laughs> Joseph Smith. Yeah, exactly. With the track caps do it, there's it's like a divider where there's like a little mesh screen and you get in there and you go like zip and you can talk through the um, uh, through the hole in the in the in the wall, really. And you tell your sins and you hear the priest's voice on the other end tell, telling you what to uh, absolving of you, sin, absolving you of your sins and giving you spiritual advice and all that. Um, but the tr- traditional, I mean, the, the Novus Ordo, the new mass, the mainstream Catholics, actually a lot of the time you're just face, you're just sitting face to face. That's how it's done for the most part now. Um, but Wolf loved to constantly preach about the sexual teachings and, you know, your even thoughts are not, sexual thoughts are not allowed. I mean, think about it. How can anyone expect to have any kind of healthy relationship whatsoever with someone if they have this forced, you know, separation kind of this forced, you know, like it's not going to be healthy. It's you're not going to have be able to, you know, you, what if what if on your wedding night you and your partner aren't sexually compatible at all, mm-hmm. and you're just stuck together, you know, the the rest of your life. You know, there's nothing you can do about it, according to them. Once you're married, divorce, absolutely not. You know, there was a saint of the church, Thomas More, who died he had his head cut off by henry the eighth for refusing to um go along with the divorce he was willing to have his head cut off rather than um tell the king that his divorce was okay um so yeah that's that's how seriously they take it and um basically i would obviously young man i'm thinking about girls 
I'm thinking about, you know, um, sex, you know, it's I'm hitting puberty. That's just the natural part of life. Very normal. But I didn't see it as normal. I saw it as very bad. I thought I had to, you know, tamp all this stuff down. And that was the constant encouragement for me from that priest. It got to the point where, per his instructions, and I, there's audio of this that's online, he would tell me of him saying this publicly, he would tell me if I was having sexual thoughts and they were getting really intense, to physically hurt myself mm. to, as a way to distract myself from them. One thing he told me to do was kneel on my fingers, which really hurts. If someone is still struggling with controlling his eyes and his thoughts, he can up the ante by kneeling on his fingers. Take your hands like that, put them on the floor, kneel on your fingers while you say the Hail Marys. It'll hurt. It won't cripple you. It'll hurt. That's the point. You're asking the Blessed Virgin to take you more seriously because maybe you need to up the ante. It'll hurt. Okay. And I had to do it the length of time of saying three Hail Marys because the Virgin Mary, you know, is the perfect, you know, woman. And so you've got to sort of like meditate on her virginity and meditate on how beautiful that is and how awesome that is. Um, Hold on. I'm just noticing an enormous contradiction here. So you're not allowed to think sexual yeah. thoughts, but then to get rid of sexual thoughts, you think of the virginity of a woman. You think of like Mary is so perfect because she's a virgin. We all know about Jesus was not conceived sexually, right? Yeah, that that that's you know very very common knowledge. You know the angel sort of divinely inseminated Jesus into mm -hmm. her womb is 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 the idea. And you got to think about that. Why? Why couldn't God allow His Son? to be conceived in the way every other person is. Why couldn't he allow God to be set to, why couldn't he let Joseph and Mary have sex? Mm -hmm. The only really conclusion you can, and, and it's not really said why, but the only conclusion you can really come to is that, well, there's something inherently wrong with it. Mm. It's sort of a, an after, it's sort of an after the fall or sexual pleasure, at least. I don't know about the act itself, but sexual pleasure is a consequence of the fall. Uh, you know, and so it's just inherently bad. And it's okay in marriage. Uh, you can, you can have, but sexual pleasure is like the common attitude among traditional Catholics is why do you even care? Why do you, sexual pleasure? What, what, why do you, what is even, what's the point? Like, like, like they just have a really, really, they find it sort of like overall to be kind of a bad thing. And it's a complete contradiction. Mm -hmm. Because in marriage, it's good, I, I, you know, but the way they make it make sense is they say it's this precious, precious thing. It's like so good. It's so holy that and it, it's the same way with the host. You know, I remember um, in a theology in, in some sort of something called theology of the body is something that the church does to sort of like make the Catholic sexual ethics make sense and not be oppressive and not be awful. I mentioned earlier how the the Eucharist, the host, is the literal body of of Jesus. There was some something said like you wouldn't play hockey with it, right? You wouldn't uh, you wouldn't throw it around. You you would treat it with the utmost respect. And um, it's just it, they said it's the same way with sex. You know, it's so good that you gotta um, you know treat it like it's the, it's this, this precious jewel, and you don't sort of throw that away casually. And so that's a way in purity culture. It's a very common thing. Mm -hmm. um, girls say like I'm saving myself for for that special guy you know I'm, I'm saving my body for him and they they get into this mindset like you know their body is like the you know 
in order to get out of their headspace of thinking that sex is bad, like it can't be bad. So, oh no, I know it's so good that it's bad. Like, like it's contradictory. It doesn't make any sense, but that's sort of the, the logical progression here. I'm trying to make sense of something that I'm trying to explain something that really doesn't make any sense because these sexual teachings are just so oppressive and so, you know, random and, and, and ridiculous that it's hard to, that there's really no way you can say, okay, well now in, in, in marriage that now it's, now it's perfectly good. And there's something else tied in to all of this, something, an idea called the marriage debt. Um, and this is something that's told to, to young Catholic men. Sometimes I want to make it clear. This belief is not just sort of like shouted out from the rooftops all, all that often, but when you get into the nitty gritty, this is told to you. And it's sort of a way of getting these young men to say, look, I know this repression is tough, but here's some, here's the good part after marriage. And it's the marriage debt. Here's what the marriage debt is. And it's, and it's horrific and it's fucked up. The woman has to have sex with her husband whenever he wants her to. Mm. It's, mar- it's marital rape. There's no other way to say it. The marriage debt says, once you're married, you as a woman, and, and it technically applies to the man as well, but you as a woman have no choice but to say yes when your husband wants to have sex. Yeah. Unless you're like sick or pregnant already or, or, or you know, you know that, that stuff, Un- unless those things are going on. It's your duty. It's your duty. Yeah, exactly. And so a lot of the young men think in their head, it, it, it's it, in the back of their mind, you know, this isn't ever really explicitly said. But in the back of their mind, it's like, yeah, I got to be all repressed right now. And it sucks. But man, when I'm married, I'm, it, it's going to be whenever I want. It, it, it's like, it's like, you know, I've got, I, I don't have to worry. It's like whenever I want to, you know? And so that's, yeah, that's just real. That's obviously that's, that's sick and horrific. And I, I remember getting to the point where it's like, I don't want to, I don't want that to be the, the nature of our relationship. I remember thinking like, like, I wouldn't want that for her. Whoever I end up marrying, I would never want that for her. It's a teaching that is hidden. It, 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 it's, it's sort of like, it's said quietly, like, okay, so marriage dead. Like, you, you know what, you know what I mean? Because they don't, if that got, if that got out there to any large degree, it would really, it would be really devastating for them. So I want to jump in here and just solidify a few things. The first being, I personally am not against saving yourself for marriage. If that's something that you truly want to do and that makes yeah. you feel good. And if you do want to view sex as something sacred between a husband and wife or whoever your partner may be, that's beautiful for you. What we're speaking on is when it's so forced and so repressed and you are being told to harm yourself in order to keep yourself what they would call, quote, pure or clean, it becomes really dangerous when you have these extremes and when you put someone, when you tie their hands behind their back, like you said, if they're expected to, once they get married, be able to have sex whenever they want or force their partner to have sex with them. And it just comes out in this rage. That's not healthy either. So what I'm for is a balance. What I'm for is conscious decision making of deciding what you want to do with your own body and not letting anyone else tell you what you can and can't do with it. Obviously, not creating harm to anybody else, but understanding that What you do with your body is your choice. And I also have to point out, we did an entire episode on this just recently on Purity Culture, so you can watch that um, with Kendra. But 
what we talk about is when you have this whole purity thing and you say to women especially, it's usually who is targeted with purity culture, when you say to them, you have to save yourself for marriage or you're not worth anything, if it's that if the if it's their choice and they lose their virginity on their wedding night, that's great, but that's also not realistic for a lot of women because yeah. of when you have so much sexual assault going on in the world. I mean, I'm pretty sure based on the statistics and I'll look it up and I'll also link the resource below, but one in 6 women will be assaulted by the time they're 18. So, just the chances of being what they would call pure and clean before you get married are already the odds are against you. And now you're having to deal with the mentality of I'm not worth anything or no one's going to want to marry me or I'm a sinner and it wasn't even your choice. So I just wanted to put that out there that if you want to save yourself from marriage, we're not saying that's the issue. We're talking about the sexual distortion that comes from extreme repression and from being shamed and guilted and told to harm yourself. Yes. And then, you know, go off on your partner once you get married. Those are the things that we want to point out that are unhealthy. Deeply, deeply unhealthy. And, um, and I want to talk about, you know, where this is all about, you know, bodily autonomy. You know, it's all about, you know, deciding it for yourself uh, what to do with your own body because it's your own body. The Catholic, mm-hmm. tr- the trad Catholics don't respect that idea because to them, it's not your body. Your body is a gift from God. Mm. It's tricky. They have this weird things where th- this idea where it's like your body is like the physical manifestation of your spirit. Um, in, in, in a in kind of a way, uh, so they're they're really big on aesthetics too, um, on how things look. Uh, but but that's that's anyway. The point I'm trying to make is that they don't respect. They just don't respect the idea that it's your body. You can just do what you want with it because it's not your own. It's not your own body to them, and that's a very very har- harmful, damaging um, idea. Mm-hmm. That if you if you don't have your own body, what do you have? You know. Not only is your own body not yours, but your own mind is not yours. Your own thoughts aren't yours. Um, You have to shut shut out sexual thoughts. So um, you just don't. So obviously, this cripple this pulverizes your sexual identity when you're uh, when you're growing up and in puberty. It cripples you uh, sexually. and just getting really personal here, it's affected me to this day. So since high school, I mean, uh, my last year of high school, I broke up with the girl I was uh, with at the time uh, with my girlfriend and, you know, in our super monitored, you know, environment. And since then, I have not been in a relationship with anyone that's lasted like more than two weeks. You know, I thought to myself for so long, why can't I make this work? What's wrong with me? And I and it's not that women didn't want to weren't willing there, but there were several instances where I was with a girl and we were doing everything, but, you know, but intercourse and we were, we, she was ready, but I, I couldn't, I, it, it was terrifying. I, I just had this fear response this built into me. It's like my mind was able, had, had moved on at that point from the church teachings, but it's still ingrained in your body yeah. because my body was trained to associate physical pain with with sexual imagery and sexual yeah. thoughts and sexual pleasure, it's to associate physical pain pain with it, 
and they were things so such as where they, they, they it's a backwards world because they call masturbation they call uh jerking off self abuse right that that's the t- the term they have for it right Mormons do that too yeah exactly uh so you associate sexual pleasure as abusive and painful it it, it, it can it can only it can only ha- have that imprint inside of you that that's the the natural effect of it. And I'm working with a therapist uh, through all these issues. And um, I don't want to say this is a permanent problem I have because I don't want to believe that. But I am. It's a constant struggle. I'm 27. And this is, you know, was done. This was my life from 14 to 18, you know, and it's it's still it's still very much in there, you know, inside my body, this this pain response, this fear response. And it's it's really and it's just damaged my mental health significantly as well as a result, uh, you know, because uh, b- because you know I, I'm I'm a very romantic person. I'm a very kind of sensual person, and I really really value that kind of connection with someone. And I've gotten and I've I've pretty much had it up until you know when it when it counted, and then I couldn't make it work. And then of course the relationship can't work after that. Wow. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. It's just, it's something that I don't think these leaders are understanding the intense ramifications of their teachings and the way that they're affecting the youth because puberty is such a pivotal time in our lives as far as just biology goes and your body is starting to mature and do these things and having these responses, these thoughts, this is all extremely natural. And so when you are going against nature, it's just really hard to flip the switch all of a sudden and be fine. And I don't think they're understanding that. And that's another distinction that I wanted to make that, yes, sex can be sacred and beautiful and pure with the person that you love, but also... When you put so much weight and heaviness on that, it can be really difficult to go from sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad till to, okay, it's fine now. Yeah. And I don't think they understand the crossover is so extreme that it takes a long time to acclimate yourself and get back into the what they would call the natural man, the state where you are comfortable and okay with these sexual feelings and desires. It's just really, really difficult. And something that we talked about off camera that I know we wanted to bring up today too was how they encourage suffering, not only just for tampering your sin or whatever you want to call it, but they think that suffering is a good thing and they don't encourage the opposite. Do you want to speak to that? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, real quick, I just want to say you, you said that um, they don't understand the, the effects they're having. To me, I would say they either don't understand or they just don't care. Mm. You know, uh, so um, and I think there's a significant number of them who just don't care and think it's it's good. Uh, Wolf even said that priest who told me to do these things, he said something like some men are lonely and miserable and saved, you know, right. that, that, that's uh, at least you'll go to heaven, you know, that that that's sort of their um, the attitude they had. Well, I guess that makes sense because I just <laughs> talked about how they said suffering is good. And so they actually are fine with you suffering in your adolescence. Yeah. If that means being saved. Yeah. Just. Yeah, contradicted exactly. Myself so there. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I, I, you, it was a good point you made. And um, 
yeah, they love, they think suffering, if it's done, like, not just like suffering in general, they don't think it's good. But if it's suffering done, here's a common phrase they say, offer it up. You'll say, oh, I uh, stubbed my toe. Um, oh, I, uh, my dog died. It sucks. They would say, offer it up. And what that basically means is that you, you, you give your suffering to God and God will like take your suffering and give you spiritual points. Like, yeah, spirit, it, 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 and that, that's sort of a crude way to say it, but it's, it's very abstract, you know, theological stuff is kind of hard to say in a plain way, but they would often talk about certain saints throughout the church's history who um, were martyred, like, martyrdom dying for the faith uh is a is a one-way ticket straight to heaven Mm -hmm. saint francis you know used to like roll around naked in the snow and uh wear shirts made of hair and there's a very common pattern of that because they i I think part of it is like we're it's sort of imitating jesus's suffering you know the crucifixion is just and then they whipped him, and then they put a crown of thorns on his head, and then they beat him, and then they made fun of him, and he had to carry that. It's just, you know, it's just torture. Um, I don't want to use the p the p, torture the p word to, to say it like that, but you get what I mean, right? It's just this. The story of Jesus' crucifixion is just. It's like an. It's sort of like Saw. You know. You know what I mean? Like a Saw. One of the Saw movies where the whole thing is just um, nonstop torture. And they really, really get into that aesthetic because the torture was, it was self-sacrificial. And the Eucharist is sacrificial as well. You know, you know, they, they literally think that if, if the Eucharist didn't happen, if the, the sacrament of the Eucharist uh, was not, um, ever stopped, stopped across the whole planet for whatever reason, that God would literally just blow up the world instantly. Like the, the um or the world would just immediately end. Like the you the, the Eucharistic sacrifice is like keeping the world here. Essentially, that's a very very ancient idea that kind of goes back. Um, that's almost like the Aztecs with human sacrifice, mm-hmm. because we all know about you know the gruesome acts that the Aztecs would do. They would you know cut people open and, and pull their heart out on the on the top of the uh, temple. They did that to to keep the earth to keep the earth here to, to keep the sun rising and setting to, because in the Aztec mythology the world was created when the Aztecs god when the Aztec gods cut themselves and their blood created the world and um, it's a very similar idea because with the Eucharist we're redoing the sacrifice of Jesus is the idea we're turning the Eucharist into the body, the literal body and blood of Christ, and we're eating it. And that is keeping what, and and that's, and the priest would often say that he would say, you know, in the Eucharist, in the sacrament, when we're, when we're coming up and receiving, we're all physically there at the foot of the cross. We're right there. It's happening as we speak. And so, yeah, it's just perpetual. It's a very, again, sacrifice is a very, very ancient concept that in order to make the gods happy, they want something from us. Mm. And the concept of, of encouraging suffering in the Tradcath world even goes as well to the afterlife because let's say you're a really good Catholic. Um, you did everything you, what you're supposed to do. When you die, you're probably going to go to purgatory for a while. And purgatory is like hell, but it's temporary. And you go to purgatory to clean yourself, to purge yourself of 
your venial sins, your little sins, the the the, the, the little bad things you do, uh, those are um, and the effects of mortal sin as well. They 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 say in confession, even after you're forgiven, the effects of the sin are still on your soul and everything. And so, it is just such a culture of self hatred. And such a culture of God is angry, and God want, God needs constant um, God needs constant sacrifice. He needs constant uh, praise of Him, uh, and he, he 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 wants your pain to be dedicated to Him. Offering it up when they say that it's basically like dedicate your pain to God, and so that sort of encourages people to suffer more. Yeah. And I've been out of religion for a while, and Mormons, they definitely don't focus on the pain. They focus on toxic positivity, which is another beast. But what you're describing, having been so separate from religion for a long time, it just feels really dark. And I think a lot of times people have a hard time realizing that or admitting that to themselves. But if you really look at it objectively, you have this God who wants you to be in pain for him. If you, if I were dating someone, if Jonathan, for example, my husband, if he constantly wanted me to be in pain to appease him, yeah. everyone on this platform would be like, what are you doing, Shalise? Is this a toxic relationship? Or Break up with him, Or not even yeah. that, to take it a step further because he's technically the father, right? God the father. If a parent were to do that. I mean, we've talked about multiple cases where parents are hurting their children or wanting their children to be in pain and and that's a part of the love. Everyone can agree that that's not okay. Yeah, that whole Ruby Frankie thing. Yeah, and so it's just really interesting when people are able to kind of separate the real world with this uh I don't want to just say mythology because, again, I don't want to offend anybody. I Maybe it's real. I don't know. I'm not one to say. But I think it's it's hard for people to understand how literal it actually is in the way that it's taught and that God the Father wants you to suffer, at least in this specific group who we're talking about. I know a lot of Christians will probably disagree with me, but I just want to point out for the purposes of this discussion, that that's what we're talking about is an extremely toxic and abusive relationship with someone who you're supposed to dedicate your life to. Absolutely. Obviously, all of this stuff is deeply toxic and can only produce um, thoughts of self-hatred, thoughts of depression, thoughts of anxiety and depression, because it's all such grim uh, and serious um stuff and so needlessly so too but one thing that makes it so much worse and this is a common uh thread throughout um the traditional catholic world is a distrust of the professional of psychiatry and psychology Mm. maybe not to the degree that the scientologists maybe not quite to the degree that the scientologists uh, see them but they definitely think that they're not really going to help you uh, they are, they're going to just encourage your sin and um, tell you that the things you should be guilty about, you shouldn't feel guilty about. So like, you know, if you're, if you're LGBT and you're, but you're in this um, environment where they're telling you it's bad and you're struggling with, you know, uh, self-hatred, you'd go to the therapist and say, Hey, I'm struggling with, you know, being gay. I, I think it's bad. And the therapist, you know, Pretty much every therapist I would think today would tell their patient, no, like 
that's fine. You don't need to fight that. You just, it's who you are. Just, just accept it. And um, so obviously the traditional Catholics would be like, don't talk to them, just stay away from them. And I was told, you know, I was basically told the same thing uh, by Wolf um, that he, he encouraged me because I was bringing this stuff up. I was like, I'm having panic attacks. I'm hitting my head against the wall. And he was like, well, let's, I'll help you, you know, that, and, and so um, the, the person, you know, the person who was the source for the most part, the source of all of this mental suffering was pain was at the same time, the person who was presented to me as my, um, the person solution. to go to, to there's the solution to exactly. So it was just obviously making the problem worse and worse and worse. Their dismissal of the psychiatric industry is um, deeply harmful uh, for that reason. And also what's an, an, another extremely harmful thing piled on top of that is their explanation for mental health issues, which are demons. I was told there was a demon, you know, with me, like, like, you know, there, there was just a demon following me around, getting into my head, um, making me want to making me want to look at bikinis, you know, making me um, want to because at the public pool growing up, I would often like, look the other way, like tr try to avoid eye contact, or, or not even look at any any women who were you know dressed in bikinis or whatever and so being told to like do these do these prayers to wash to banish the demons away like one is like precious blood of jesus wash over me precious blood of jesus wash over me i banish you demon to the foot of the cross to be judged by our lord these are just things to say in our heads that are supposed to fix the problem that are supposed to scare the demons away who are like trying to make you think of sexual things and, and trying to make you depressed and anxious and upset and all of that. That's terrifying. It, it is absolutely terrifying. And they talk about exorcisms like they saw it with their own eyes and they go like, they'll very often be speaking on, be speaking about and say, yeah, I saw this guy, his eyes turned red and he, his voice changed and he climbed up the ceiling. And so you think like that really cements in your head that all of this is real yeah. because these people are, 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 are just casually talking about all the all the exorcisms they've done and all the demons they've um, they've seen and all all of the the people who have done you know supernatural impossible things and their demonic possession and that's you're like oh my gosh like this is like oh these guys uh, I, I better listen to these guys so so this doesn't happen to me so I don't get possessed or anything like that you know it gets pretty ridiculous too in their descriptions of the demon like one priest said that an exorcist asked this person who is possessed. How did you uh, get into this person's soul? How did how were you able to enter this person's soul? And the demon said, "He read Harry Potter." Oh um, I'm not kidding, Anthony. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I swear. Hold on, I I'm need to kidding. get your opinion on this because do you is it in your opinion? This is my guess that these priests are literally just making up these stories as a way to control the masses and say, don't read Harry Potter. Do you think that they're just doing that to scare people? I I really have no other conclusion to come to um, because they, they describe all these things and yet there's no video. No video. Obviously, no obviously there's no video. No proof. And here's their excuse. They say this is such a personal thing. Like you wouldn't want your exorcist. You wouldn't want public video of your, your demonic possession, right? That's like the worst moment in your life. We could never do that to anyone to film that, to film what's going on because that would be like an invasion of privacy. So that's their explanation as to why 
there's no video footage and no physical proof of these these demonic uh, incidents. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, so nobody on the no, nobody who was present there happened to pull their phone out. If I was see if I was present and I was seeing these things really happen, I don't know about you, but I would think to myself, if this were if this if people saw this, it would end the debate. Yeah. People would have no choice but to say Catholicism's real. It would prove the church is real. So wouldn't they would want to just throw these videos out and show them to the world? Like, look, you guys don't believe in demons. Here, here it is. You know that would solve, that would prove their case. And yet they have this thing. Oh no, privacy. Like, if I were in that position and I was possessed by a demon and the exorcisms successfully got the demon out of me, I would say, publish my video. Like film this and and tell the world so everyone can become a Catholic, right? That would mm-hmm. be my viewpoint. So yeah, I have really no other um, explanation uh, or, or way to describe it other than they're just, they're just fucking lying. You know, uh, that that's really not, beca- and there's, you can look these up. There are exorcists who go on podcasts and uh, talk about, talk about this stuff and uh, spread this out to the world. And there's this one, exorcist priest named chad ripperger who's really popular in the um trad world and he's like a demonology expert he claims and he and whenever he speaks he like talks about all the demons and their characteristics like like you know uh, and uh he describes there's this one demon named leviathan that's the demon of butch lesbianism yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's in um it's 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 pretty stupid and fun it's pretty stupid and I found out later, I didn't know this at the time and that when I heard that, but I found out later that that's apparently straight from Anton LaVey. Who's that? He was the founder of the Church of Satan. Oh. Yeah. And so what I think these guys are doing is I think they're reading uh, stuff that th- these uh, satan- people who are like into Satanism. And I'm not, I'm, I mean, do whatever you want, but I'm just not, not interested in that, that kind of thing. I think what these priests are doing is they're reading these books and they're reading what these guys have made up about their demons. And they're just using that to give it an air of credit, I guess to give it an air of credibility and stuff. Cause someone could read it and be like, Oh, wow. The church of Satan's founder is talking about these same demons. So they must, these exorcists must know what they're talking about. You know? Okay. I just have to say that if anyone is listening who has been through an exorcism where they felt possessed and then they felt better after the exorcism, I want to talk to you. Send me an email, <laughs> cults to consciousness at gmail.com. Absolutely. I want to talk to you because I've talked to a few people who've had exorcisms done on them. And both times they were like, well, the first one we just did, um, someone from the AUB, like a, a Mormon polygamy cult, he was saying, yeah, I was just severely dehydrated and my Mormon bishop tried to exorcise me. And then another one, she was saying, yeah, I was just really mentally ill at the time and they weren't giving me help and they tried to exercise demons out of me. And yeah, I was convulsing, but it was also terrifying and they were screaming at me. And so those are the only accounts that I have. And I would be extremely interested to hear from someone who does feel like maybe some supernatural thing was going on because here, here we go. I'm not one to say that demons don't exist, just as the same way I'm not to, I'm not the one to say God does or doesn't exist. I think anything's possible, but I also lean towards the side of realism and pragmatism and show me the proof. So I'm open to hear from people who really felt like they had an experience or the complete opposite. Maybe they were devout and they thought they were having an exorcist experience that was real 
And then they deconstructed and realized, oh, this is why I felt that way. So I just had to throw that out there. Email me. Yeah, absolutely. I never had any kind of exorcism experience. Um, At one point, Wolf said, maybe we'll do some kind of minor exorcism on you. That, he he mentioned that it never happened, uh, but he was he definitely thought I was uh, not possessed, but afflicted by a demon. On the outside, it's easy to laugh at, but I think people also need to understand that when it, it's 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 deadly serious uh, when it's when it's affected because that is a a terrifying. That's another thing that's insanity inducing is to think that this invisible entity that's just pure evil is in your head and talking to you certain voices in your head certain things that are telling you that this stuff isn't right you know they get you to associate that with pure evil you know what i mean and that's a keeps and and these are all things that i'm bringing forth to emphasize the my overall thesis here my main thesis is that the traditional catholic traditional catholicism is a cult it's a destructive cult the mainstream catholic church is not and i'm trying to go point by point here to illustrate all the things that we know we associate with cults, all the characteristics. And of course, a great go-to is Stephen Hassan's bite model. It's check, it checks off every box uh, of the bite model for the traditional Catholic world. You know, they obviously control your behavior. They obviously control the information you get. Wolf would often say, I forbid you to read this book. I forbid you to watch this movie. There was something called the Index of Banned Books. That's not a thing anymore, but the church uh, just had a list of books you can't, you're not allowed to read. And uh, controlling your thought, absolutely. You're, you're supposed to, you know, rid your, your brain of any, of any thoughts they say are bad. And of course, they're controlling their emotions because all of this is all extremely emotional and extreme. It's, over, it's all emotionally overwhelming. That's something they do. They they keep they, they keep you in a constant state of being emotionally overwhelmed mm-hmm. and not in a positive way. They're also very much um, there. There's a, a, an anticipation of the end times. That's uh, that that it's imminent. That's another thing that's cult one hundred and one, right? Um, Wolf would often get up there and say they're going to round us up in con- they're going to round us up in concentration camps soon, like within like four or five years. He was just constantly preaching that there was going to be an imminent government crackdown on them. And I'll be honest, I think that the government to some degree, I don't, the government to some degree should crack down on them. There was actually an FBI investigation into them. And there was a hearing in Congress where there was like one right winger was yelling at the attorney general, like, why are you going after traditional Catholics? And the attorney general, from what I could tell with Merrick Garland, he was just like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but I wish they would start saying, yeah, there's stuff to look into here. There's stuff to investigate because these people are leaving behind a trail of destruction in their wake of children who are just, who are sexually pulverized and emotionally drained and, and, and emotionally just um, weary. Yeah. There was one boy who ran, I remember this very clearly. He ran away from home and uh, stole money and bought a, bought a prostitute because of how bad the repression was. And I remember when that happened. And I, at the time, of course, I didn't know the real story I found out later, but that's how bad it can get where people just like, I cannot, like, they just run, run out into the wilderness basically to, to, to escape, to escape this environment. Never got that bad for me, but I definitely had a lot of suicidal ideation. And in college I had a suicide attempt. Mm. I feel a lot separate from that headspace. Now I feel like that's, 
that kind of thought process for me is pretty far behind me. But, you know, different people have are in a different uh, different states, you know, of that. And I I'm still working through and, and trying to unravel the phys- the what was imp- the, if the physical imprint, you know, that's still in me of this repression, you know. Yeah. It's like wet cement, you know, and you put your handprint in the wet cement and it's basically there forever. Um, and, you know, children are wet cement and you got to be very, very careful about the, what you do with it, you know? And so you can go off now and at direct me in a certain way if you want, because I was just wanting to make that point there. Yeah, no, it's a good point to make. And I think what's so tricky about the government getting involved is unless there are signs of outward physical abuse, it's really hard for them to do anything about it because what we're talking about is so psychological. And of course, there are tangible ramifications and harms that are being caused. But as far as someone stepping in and doing anything about it, they can just look around and be like, look, everyone is fine, (laughs) you know? And that's another reason why a lot of these cults go untouched, especially Mormonism, because from the outside, they look perfect, happy. They're great. They're happy families. Look at them. They're all smiling. They don't realize what's going on underneath the surface. And even the more extreme Mormon sects, like the fundamentalist sects, where Mm -hmm. we just interviewed someone with 163 siblings. And it's just like the government can't even really get involved with that because it's not illegal to have kids outside of a legal marriage. And so it's just really tricky to kind of infiltrate these groups. And that's why we have this channel so that people can understand and we can spread awareness because the more people are aware of these things going on, the more that can be done. But really, it's going to take everybody understanding what's going on in these groups and shedding light on these dark corners that people don't know are happening right under their noses so that we can help the people who are still involved. Exactly. Yeah. And again, I don't know what... You're right. It's tricky. I don't know what specific actions the government could take, if any, but I just, I agree with their impulse, with the impulse, the F, I don't know the details, but for whatever reason, the FBI thought we had, we should take a look at these trad Catholics. We should maybe keep an eye on them, see what they're up to. That's at least the extent of which I thought to it. And um, I just think they should, they're on to, they need to keep pursuing that. They need to pursue that a little further. And I, and I want to say something else about, the environment. And, um, I, there are, and this is the same with, with every cult. And this is the tragic element of all of them is that the people in them, basically they're all really good people. I was surrounded by a lot of really good people, really nice people, people who I truly believe if they were not in this environment, if they weren't raised in this environment or didn't have some sort of religious draw to it, they wouldn't think these these things about, you know, being gay is bad and all of that. And, um, women can't control their own bodies and all of that stuff. They, they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't think that, but the, the lead, the people in power, the leadership, the people running things, they're the people who need, who the blame and, and the ire and the anger needs to be drawn. Because very often I think that, you know, people who are part of these kinds of groups, they get offended. Like, how can you say I'm in a cult? And it's like, like, you're calling me stupid. Yeah. And that we, we need to get this point driven home is that it has absolutely nothing to do with intelligence. Mm-hmm. It has absolutely nothing to do with intelligence. It's all about emotional needs. 
for these people, it fills a deep emotional need. And I want to respect that. And I don't want that to be taken away from them because we all have emotional needs. They're just different uh, for me. My happiness, my personal sense of, you know, feeling stable and at peace is not tied in with belonging to a church. But I know that for so many people it is. And it was for me growing up, you know, I thought to myself, how can I be happy if I don't have this? And, and I still struggle with not knowing what happens after I die. I still struggle with that. But I'm much more willing to contend with that question than I am to go back into this, you know, high control, abusive environment. Yeah. Um, and so I, I want I want it to be very clear that the people who knew me, uh, if you if you find this video, the people who knew me at the time who are still involved in this, um, you're going to hear you'll, you'll hear me calling this uh, place a cult. And I and I, I I mean that. But I'm not saying I'm not pointing at you and going cult member like like, how dare you? I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm pointing at you and saying, I just want you to step out for a second and, and look at this from an outside view just for a second, because I think, I think that you will, if you do that, the things I'm saying will resonate and make sense. Yeah. And understanding that there can be a happier, healthy way to even serve God, for example. You don't have to be in something that's so controlling and so rigid and so yeah. painful. You can worship in a way that still gives you that emotional fulfillment, but actually allows you to have what we were talking about, self-autonomy and individual sovereignty is what yeah. we talk about on the podcast. So at what point were you able to understand that this isn't something that you wanted to be a part of? I was pretty with it and on board with everything um, for my first from 2010 to 2013. And maybe in the later half of 2013 going into 2014 was when I started to have some issues, specifically with traditional Catholicism. At this point, I was still very much thinking I'm a, I'm 100% a Catholic. Um, but I started to get kind of like irritated with their, their scientific um, beliefs which I, I actually totally believed for a while. Like, I didn't believe evolution was real. Um, that's a big thing for them. They hate evolution and the Big Bang. Even though the Big Bang, uh, the first person who came up with that theory was a Catholic priest. Really? How funny. Yeah, his name was George Lemaitre. Um, e even still, uh, they think it's evil and wrong, and uh, they're... They're pretty much creation. They're, they're pretty much biblical literalists and creationists uh, across the board, and some of them even go so far as to say that the sun does not move and the earth goes around the sun. Some of them still think that uh, because Galileo, you know, like like if the church was wrong about Galileo, what else are they wrong about? Yeah, so that's another thing is that the church was totally right with Galileo. Nothing to apologize for. The church. I don't know if you know the church had an official apology for Galileo. Mm -mm. Yeah, I think it was in 1993, the church said, we were wrong. Sorry uh, about, about Galileo, but, uh, that doesn't really get talked about all that much. And, uh, the trad Catholics go, we weren't wrong. I was starting to see how stupid that stuff was. And I was starting to think, well, they're wrong about this, but they, they have this air of a right about everything. And they have this air about, uh, of self, self arrogance and self importance. And that was starting to rub me the wrong way. I was starting to understand how unhealthy the sexual repression was. It was just, I was just in so much mental pain that wasn't alleviating itself mm -hmm. that I started to think that this, this is just too much. Like I, I can't keep living like this really and feel healthy, but I still wanted to abide by the Catholic church's teachings on sexuality. 
So I started getting more into um, what's called theology of the body and people like Christopher West and Jason Everett, who are Catholics who try to take the church's thinking and present it as actually kind of sexy. Like they, they, they really just do their best to say it's sexy to not have sex or stuff like that. Or they, <laughs> they try to, they try to make it cool and interesting. And they talk about, you know, they, again, they emphasize the preciousness of sex and how great it is. And they, and they keep going like, we love sex. Sex is awesome. Uh, but, but you got to do it right. You know, that, that, that's, that's how they emphasize it. And that's a, a very, very different, um, you know, approach than the trad Catholics, which is like bad, 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 suppress, 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 suppress. That, that's how they, they approach it. And so, um, I just, uh, I, I decided that, um, cause I was about, I'd been accepted to University of Dallas and I thought, okay, this is going to be a fresh start. And I'm going to go there and I'm going to sort of like relearn my Catholic faith and, 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 and learn it in a way that's the, the right way. And, and it's more horrible because, because I wanted to be, go on YouTube and be like a Catholic, um, apologist i wanted to be the guy who like goes out and talks about catholicism and how great it is and Uh all that and so and so i started to watch a lot of atheists on youtube to uh learn their arguments and become familiar with it yeah and what it what ended up happening was they kind of just convinced me (laughs) uh so (laughs) they deconverted you (laughs) yeah they they deconverted me i started to like think about like okay how can i respond to this claim and i would think huh I'm having a really hard time figuring out how to respond to this claim. <laughs> yeah. Why is that? And I realized too that you can't really, like something emotional has to happen. There has to, for someone to have a religious conversion, there has to be some sort of deep, emotional, profound experience for them. It never happens where they're like reading a book and they're like, Oh, oh yeah. I, I, yeah. Oh yeah. I guess, I guess I'm a Catholic now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that, that, that doesn't happen. You need to have, because it's so tied in with emotions, it has the either leaving it or joining it. Either way, it has to be a deep emotional experience you have. Yeah. But for me, it was kind of like intellectual and emotional as well. And I realized that to me at all, my disagreement with the Catholic Church and kind of with Christianity in general, I really can boil down my why I don't believe it to one thing, which is original sin, that concept. Original sin is just preposterous to me because, you know, the story of Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. He tells them not to eat the fruit. They eat it. And so that brings sin into the world. And that bring and, and very often um, Wolf would say, you know, there's sin in the world. Thanks, Adam, and stuff like that. And so um, the idea is, is that because of that, because Adam and Eve took that fruit in the garden, we all have that sin imprinted, like we're just born with it. It's woven into our DNA, the sin. And even St. Saint, Saint Augustine, uh, who was uh, what the church calls a church father, he said that original sin is like, is semen. Like semen is original sin, basically, is what Augustine said. And so um, that's why we can't escape it. Because we're born, we come out of, you know, the semen and the egg meeting. That's how we, that's how we're all born. And because like semen is original sin juice, uh, that, that, that was his explanation of, of why it happens. And so. Yikes. That's a whole nother layer on purity culture. I know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so the idea that we, we all, by simply being born, we have guilt by simply being born. I can't in any way f- find that morally right because uh, like imagine you knew someone who and you would talk to them and they said oh yeah my great grandfather he was a he was a serial killer 
would you go like arrest this guy right now like 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 get him in <laughs> the descendant of the, the the sinner the person who did the bad thing has no moral culpability whatsoever for the actions of their ancestors yeah. yet every human has moral culpability you know however billions of years or however long thousands however long it's been since whenever that was supposed to happen in what other context does that make sense in what other context does does do the descendants of people share the guilt of original uh, share the guilt of their crimes because that's that's the whole again the reason why in trad cath world suffering is good is because we're so bad we sinned we 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 sinned in the beginning we all did but we didn't we were just born you know mm-hmm. you know what i mean and so that is the deeply that's the deep flaw i have the, the fatal flaw that was the sort of the nail in my coffin is i just couldn't reconcile that that idea it just it, it still makes no sense to me yeah so now what is your consciousness? What makes you happy and at peace? And and how are you doing now? Well, thank you for asking me that. Um, what I do to be happy and be at peace is spending time with f- boring, generic answer, friends and family, for sure. But That's not boring. That's beautiful. Well, it, 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 yeah, but it's, it's with the first thing everyone says, right? Um, but I mean it. And I want to say this. I'm very, very fortunate that... My parents, my relationship with them is still good. They're in an interesting place right now where they they recognize everything I'm saying. Like they, they haven't invalidated what I've said at all. They acknowledge my pain and they mm. they they've, they've apologized to me for the for what happened. Um, and that priest, that 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 one specific priest who is who is specifically bad, he's not there anymore. He's he's out of the picture now, and um, he's actually been suspended. Uh, like he can't say mass, he can't uh, hear confessions anymore. He's been he's been put in timeout, maybe permanently. But again, I just they still they still attend that church, you know. And so I I'm at peace with that, or I try to be. I, I do my best to try to be at peace with that. Um, and it's just sort of a you know a place we're in right now. But at the end of the end of the day, we still love each other very much. And um, I wasn't about to let this thing come between come between us. And so. Um, but I know how that most of the time th- that doesn't happen. Most of the time, this does really, really affect family relationships really, really intense, really badly. And so um, that's not the case for me. And I'm grateful for that. And um, I keep myself happy, I guess, uh, by, you know, doing what I love, which is acting and writing and performing in any way and um, just connecting with people. You know, with with my issues with ADHD and anxiety, and um, it has happened a couple times during this. I sometimes have trouble communicating, and if my mind is active very a lot. I, my words slip up, and I and I don't communicate very well. And so, effective communication is really important to me, important to me. And um, because I don't think it would solve all the world's problems if we understood each other, but it would solve a great deal of them. There are some things you can just understand and say. I understand where you're coming from, but it's still just awful. It's so bad and I can't accept that. So that that's going to happen for sure. But I think that for me, just, just focusing on trying to stay positive and trying to find meaning. Um, one thing I, one way I think of it is, you know, 
I don't think in terms of a physical hell or physical heaven anymore. I don't think those are real things, but I do think that there's an aspect to that where, you know, when you die and you do a lot of things in life and you, and you have done a lot of things in your life, people will have certain memories of you. And, you know, I don't think Hitler is physically in any kind of hell, but the fact that his name is permanently associated with evil to me is a kind of hell for him, Mm -hmm. even though he's dead till the end of time, everyone will look at him and go bad guy, you know? And what you can do is you can live in such a way and make certain choices where when you die, everyone will look at you and go good guy or good gal or whatever, you know? And, um, that's to me is a way I, at least personally, I find meaning in life despite, you know, having lost that, that religious sense and that, that deep sense of comfort in when I die and if I'm good, I'm going to be happy forever. You know, that is an extremely, extremely enticing proposition. And most, I, I can understand being willing to do anything for that. But on the reverse side, they've got this thing called hell and it's the worst thing you, you can experience. And to, to get so deep into, you know, the mindset of, of contemplating that idea and, th- and that concept to getting so deep into that world is just, it has the opposite effect, obviously. It's, it's such a, it's binary, right? It's, it's the opposite effect. And, and of course, another harmful thing about that is, is the binary thinking. Everything's black and white. It's either this or that. And everything is extremely binary in the Tradcath world. And when you escape that and you, you lose any kind of, really any kind of religious sensibilities, you realize that how not black and white everything is and how much gray there is in the world. But that to me is kind of comforting because it's like, oh, maybe there's not as many bad things as I thought there were in the world. You know, maybe some things that I grew up thinking were just bad, 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 or actually there's, there's parts of them that are okay, you know, and you, you start to have a more balanced and reasoned and, 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 view on the world and that has a calming effect as well so yeah there you go yeah i love that and it's true when you take away the boundaries of this emotional control i mean any of it the whole bite model behavior control information thought and emotional control you start to understand new perspectives and realize that there's so much nuance in life and it really just softens how you perceive things and that's okay it's okay to have a more nuanced approach to something that, like you said before, is bad, bad, bad. For example, this is the first thing that came to my mind. Growing up Mormon, it was like, all drugs are bad. And if you take them, you will die. And now I'm like, okay, well, I can agree that cocaine and heroin are probably not the way to go. And I can also agree that mushrooms, magic mushrooms, and ayahuasca changed my life. So like, there's there's nuance. And of course, anything can be used and abused just like mushrooms or ayahuasca. But there's nuance there. And it's okay to find nuance within those things and find what yeah. works for you, what resonates and what doesn't resonate. And I think that's the beauty of individual sovereignty yeah. is looking at all of these different belief systems and going, you know what, that resonates. I'll take a little piece of that. That I don't want anything to do with that religion. Maybe I can pull something from Buddhism that feels good to me and allows me to be the type of person that creates less harm in the world. And like you said, leave behind a beautiful legacy of someone that you are really proud to be. And I think that's also really powerful to do things for the sake of 
being good, not because you're looking for some eternal reward or avoiding some eternal damnation or hell. And so it's just a really honest place to live in. And I think that's really awesome. So that leads us to our Linda yeah. Listen moment. Your sassy statement as a viral right. video with a toddler goes or some inspiration for our listeners, viewers. Linda Listen, uh, I can obviously understand because I experienced it that the idea of, you know, abandoning or, or moving on or turning away from something that was such an integral part of your life and was so precious to you and, you know, was animating the community around you, all your friends and family, basically, um, to, to separate yourself from that or to think it was in any way bad is very difficult and can be devastating. But I want to come in and say that I am not religious. I've said that already, but I completely understand the religious impulse and I kind of miss it. And I think it can be, um, it can be, man, it can manifest itself in an extremely positive way, in a way that doesn't lead to an abusive situation or, or, you know, just a, all these, all these children who are trying to pick, pick their lives back up again and, and, and undo the, the damage that was wrought to them. Um, you can take the religious experience, the, the, the religious impulse to worship, to gather together, to be in awe, to sing together, you know, to, to all come together. You can find that in so many other ways mm -hmm. and you can find them in a way that is not authoritarian. That is not be because, because the Tradcath world is authoritarian. Uh, it's like if, if they had their way, if they had their political will, it would be like, um, the world would look like a combination of medieval England and North Korea. You know, that that's, that's what the modern world would look like today if the traditional Catholics had their way. And that is awful and should be fought against. But for the people in that community and every other religious community who, um, you know, who, who, who need that, who, who need that in their lives. And I'm not, and I'm not saying it in any way is, you know, it's something that you ought to, get rid of. I'm not saying that you, I, I'm trying to find that religious impulse again, that, that desire to communicate and commune with, with something greater and something bigger than yourself. Um, just the way that can be done positively is if you understand in the back of your head, we don't have all the answers. Nobody does. No single person on this planet has the answers to every question you could ask. Um, important questions, right? You just need to accept that. That's kind of a scary thought because it's like nobody knows what's going on really. But I think we we have, we can reach shades of it. We, we can reach, you know, we can see some of it. And if you're just content with seeing some of it, it meaning the big, the big picture, the meaning of life, whatever, if you can just commune with some of it and not feel like I need to know everything, you'll be a lot happier. I love that. Basically, if I were to sum that up, it's Linda, listen, some of your suffering is optional. You can find happiness and that spirituality and those connections and that community in places that don't cause suffering. And that's okay. Yeah. 
Exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. And thank you for having me. Yeah. And helping us expose more of the fundamental Catholicism that we haven't spoken of. And do you have any final thoughts before we go? Just uh, think critically, um, question everything, get a second opinion. Don't give all your trust to any one man or woman or any one charter or creed or document because nuance is beautiful. Amazing. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on. And guys, if you're listening, thank you so much for joining us, making it to the end. If you want to find Anthony, you can find him on TikTok at Anthony Spurgeon 5 or on Instagram at Tony Spurgeon. We'll put his links down below in the description. If you want to support the podcast, liking, commenting, words of encouragement are a great way to help get more people to see the video. You can also check out our merch. We have some fun stuff over there at cultsofconsciousness.com under the merch tab. We have some t-shirts. We have some Linda Listen shirts. I'm sorry for what I said when I was in a cult. Um, we have a few of our favorite Linda Listens, like Don't Boink Your Sisters. You'll have to watch Amanda's episode to understand what that is speaking of polygamy and lots of fun stuff if you want to support even further you can become a patron at patreon.com slash cults to consciousness we have tiers as low as five dollars a month up to 40 in fact we just got a 40 dollar tier person diane thank you so much seriously your support means the world and if you like this video guys i will link two below that you're going to want to check out and until next time follow your highest excitement be conscious and be well thanks for listening if you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with our visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts2Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts2Consciousness at gmail.com.